Well, there are many things that seem simple on the surface but turn out to be a lot more complicated. It seems like any time I try to do any uh, home improvement kind of construction project or anything in the garden, it always seems simple on paper or it's just like laying a floor. Uh, it just seems so simple in my mind and then I go to do it and it gets more complicated. So this past summer I decided I was going to plant a pear tree in my backyard. And so the place where I was going to plant it, there was this little shrub there. Little tiny shrub, uh, not doing very well, so I was just going to pull it out. I'm thinking this is going to be a quick 15, 20-minute job. That was my mistake. So I go to start pulling it out, and at first I'm thinking, I can just maybe pull this out by the roots, pull it out by hand. I mean, it's, it's dying, small little shrub. So I go to pull it out, and I'm not pulling it out with my hands. So I get a shovel. I start shoveling around uh, kind of the, the, the roots and shoveling around the trunk and trying to pry it up, seeing if I can use the shovel to get leverage and pry it up. It's not budging. So I get a chainsaw. I take a chainsaw. I just start hacking at the trunk. And I'm making you know, these divots in the trunk, but I can't get down low enough to actually cut all the way through it. And then in the middle of this happening, the chainsaw just dies, stops working. So I keep digging. I keep digging. I try to, you know, break the roots around it and try to dig, you know, all the way around it. And so it seemed like an eternity. It's hot out. I'm sweating. I'm getting really tired, getting really frustrated because I thought this was going to be a super easy job. And so then I go and kind of see where, what my progress is like. So I go and I kind of shake the trunk and it doesn't move a millimeter. It is solid in there. At that moment, I'm thinking to myself, maybe this little shrub is going to win. <laughs> and I am so tired, so frustrated, and so I'm like, I'm just going to go crazy on this thing. And so I grab a hammer, I grab this big hammer, I turn over the other end, and I just start hacking at the roots. So I'm just going around hacking at the roots, and then I just start doing karate kicks. I'm just kicking at the, at the trunk. I get down on the ground, I'm trying to, you know, kick it as hard as I can, and remarkably, it, eventually it worked. And so after much energy, aggravation, I pull this root, this trunk out, and hold it as a prize, and take it to the refuse pile. And I was spent for the rest of the day. It was supposed to be really simple, it was supposed to be super easy, just put it in, and by the time I got that shrub out, putting the tree in was really easy. I just had to dig a little hole, stick it in there, that was easy. A lot of times things seem simple on the surface, but they turn out to be more complicated. Another example, so what's the most common word in the English language? Does anyone know the most common word in the English language? It's the word the. But how do you define the word the? How do you define that? I have no idea how you define the word the. And also, what are the rules for using the word the? I mean, there's some weird word, you know, rules for using the word the. You say, I have the flu, but you don't say, I have the COVID, or I have the headache. You say, I go on the internet, but you don't say, I go on the Facebook. Well, maybe, maybe some of us do. We say uh, Thanksgiving is the best holiday, not Thanksgiving is best holiday. And so it's like you'd think that a word is that common that we all use 
every day, probably hundreds of times. You'd think that it would be easy to find, easy to know when you use it. It's a lot more complicated than it appears. And I think love is also one of those things. You know, this passage is read at just about every wedding that has ever been conducted in the history of humanity, uh, at least since Jesus' time, of course. And it's, it's so common, and you think about, in, you know, it, love is the number one theme in movies, books, television shows, music. Love is this number one theme. It's what we talk about. That's what cultural uh, identity you know, kind of revolves around is this idea of love. And yet, finding what love is and actually carrying love out, practicing it, is more difficult. And I think Paul tells us a few things in this passage that kind of can help us as we approach this topic of love. And it, I think Paul tells us this. He tells us that love is easy to replace. It's hard to practice, but it has eternal rewards. It's easy to replace, it's hard to practice, but it has eternal rewards. It's easy to replace. It's easy to put our focus on other things rather than on love and to think that we're doing the right things. The first thing Paul tells us, there's three things Paul tells us we can replace love with. Uh, we can first replace love with activity. Paul says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. We live in an age of activity, an age of busyness. And it's not wrong to be busy if we're doing the right things. But what can happen is sometimes our busyness can kind of mask our emptiness. Our busyness can kind of be an inoculation to keep us uh, from realizing that what we're doing doesn't matter. And so we fill ourselves with stuff to do to convince ourselves that what we're doing is important and that our lives matter. The famous author and speaker Gordon McDonald once made a statement that's remarkable, and I'm not sure if I fully agree with it, but I kind of understand where he's coming from. He said this, I'm of the opinion that busyness is a deeper threat to the soul than pornography ever was. And I think what he's getting at there is at least with pornography, you have a conception that what you're doing is wrong. But with busyness, you can kind of be doing all of these activities and think that you're doing the right thing, think that you're on the right path. Author Tim Kreider says this, if you live in America in the 21st century, you probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. It's pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. He says, busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. We're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to busyness and dread, what we have to face in its absence. So busyness can trick us into thinking that what we're doing matters. And really when our, void, when our uh, lives are devoid of love, when we're just filling them with activity, we're really wasting our times. And Paul would say that we're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so I'm not a musician and I don't play the drums. I've always wanted to play the drums, but I was never very good at it. But I'm going to play a little music for you today and I hopefully you enjoy it while I'm talking. Does everyone, everyone enjoy that? 
Everyone enjoy that sound and, and how it just reverberates through your ears. And, you know, if I keep doing that, perhaps, you know, it'll give you a headache. I mean, we don't enjoy hearing a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. You know, and even if I think that I'm making music when I do that, it's just annoying. It just kind of goes right through your head. And, then, and Paul says the same thing is true when we're involved in activity, but it's devoid of love. You know, we think we're doing something important. We think that we're making music, but we're really wasting our time and perhaps even being annoying. Hosea 6.6 6 says this, God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the nation of Israel during Hosea's day were doing just that. They were replacing love with activity. They were replacing love with sacrifices. They thought if we sacrifice, if we do these religious activities, then God will be happy with us. And so they're replacing this heart of gratitude that could have been you know, demonstrated in the sacrifice, and they're like, we're just going to do these activities instead. And really, they're not accomplishing anything. So Paul says that it's easy to replace uh, love with activity. The second thing he says we can replace love with is possessions or stuff. Now, Paul makes some remarkable statements in this passage. He says that you can have various gifts and yet be nothing. And he uses hyperbole. He says that a person could have the ability to... Uh, prophesy, having all the gifts of prophecy, that is, you know, they could speak on behalf of God. If you're in a situation, they, they would know exactly what God would say in that situation. He says you can have a person that would have all knowledge. They would know all the mysteries of the world as if something like that was possible. And he says that if, even if you have those gifts, if they're devoid of love, you've accomplished nothing. He talks about having incredible faith, faith that's so powerful that it can move mountains. He says that isn't even enough. See, the problem is not with the gifts. See, God has given the members of the church, all of us, spiritual gifts. He's given us resources. He's given us opportunities. And when we're given those things, we should be grateful for those things. But here's the thing. You, know, you think about the Corinthians, and based upon what we know about the Corinthians throughout the rest of the book, if they had these gifts, if they had the faith to move mountains, if they understood all mysteries and knowledge, if they had this incredible uh, power of prophecy, what would they do? They'd probably say, look at me. Like, look at what I can do. I mean, I can say to this mountain, move, and it moves over there. I mean, look at how much faith that I have. And that's really what the problem is here. God gives us gifts, He gives us opportunities, He gives us resources, not so that we could just keep them for ourselves. He gives those things to us so that we could use them to bless others. He uses them so that we could use them as a tool to love those around us. And yet the Corinthians do just the opposite. They get gifts, they get possessions, and they glory in the possessions. They glory in the gifts themselves rather than using them as a tool to love those around them. And so Paul says it's easy to replace love for God and people with love for stuff or possessions or gifts. The third thing he tells us that it's easy to replace love with is giving. And this is really one of the most remarkable parts of this passage. You know, when we think about giving, and of course giving can be an expression of love, but giving is not love. And he makes the remarkable statement that uh, a person could be you could give up their body to be burned 
And if it's not infused with love, then it's meaninglessness, meaningless. I mean, they could, a person could make the ultimate sacrifice, pay the ultimate price, and if the motive is not there, if it's just a, something that's kind of self-glorifying, that you know, somebody's doing an act of devotion so that you know, maybe they'll feel good about themselves or that people will kind of respect and admire them, Paul says you're not accomplishing anything. And so it's easy to replace love with giving or to replace love with spiritual activities. That if we're doing the right things, it doesn't matter what our heart attitude is. We all know God cares about our hearts. He wants us to be driven by love, driven by a heart that wants to love those around us. So Paul says it's easy to replace love with different things, possessions, stuff, even spiritual things like giving. The second thing he tells us is that love is hard to practice. And our culture often communicates just the opposite to us. Our culture communicates that if it's love, it's going to be easy. If it's love, kind of the stars are going to align, the sparks will fly, and it's just going to be effortless. Yes, you'll go through some hard times, but you know, it's not going to seem hard. It's just going to be easy and smooth. When Jesus talks about love, he talks about the fact that if you're going to love, you're going to experience difficulty. If you're going to love someone, if you're going to love God, it's going to be hard. Paul tells us a few things about love. He says, first, love is patient. All right, just stop right there. Being patient is hard. That's why sometimes people will say, I've given up asking God to give me patience because I don't want the answer. I don't want to have to deal with, uh, with frustration. Being patient is hard. There's a story. His young father is in a supermarket, and uh, he had a little child with him. And the child is crying and screaming and just freaking out. And uh, all the customers were just kind of giving them their space because the child is just grabbing things off the uh, counters and throwing them in the car, throwing them on the floor. And what was remarkable was the father was just kind of calm and cool and collected. And you could hear him saying quietly, easy now, Donald. Keep calm. Keep calm, Donald. Steady boy. It's all right, Donald. A mother was passing by. He was greatly impressed by this young man's attitude. And she said, you certainly know how to talk to an upset child, quietly and gently. And then she bent down to the little boy and she said, what seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh no, said the father. He's Henry. I'm Donald. <laughs> it's hard to be patient. It's hard to keep our cool when things are going crazy. Paul says love is patient. He says love is kind. Okay, that seems a little bit easier. I mean, okay, we can be kind, right? It's not that hard to be nice, but what about being kind to people who don't deserve our kindness? What about being kind to people who are not kind to us? It's a lot more difficult. Love is not arrogant or rude, okay? Maybe we can handle that. Love doesn't seek its own way. Now that's difficult because we want things our way. We want our preferences. We want our desires to be fulfilled. We don't want other people to get the upper hand. It's hard to consider other people's needs above our own. It says love is not irritable. Some translations of the Bible translate it as not easily angered. Love doesn't have a short fuse. 
It's long-suffering. He says love is not resentful. One Greek dictionary defines the word for resentful this way, uh, to keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action, to keep a record to remember. I think that's the tendency of the human heart. When we do something that's loving, you know, we tend to try to kind of keep score. It's like, I did this for this person, and maybe they should do this back for me. And when I'm in trouble, they should help me out. And, you know, we kind of keep this tally, and we want things to be kind of reciprocal. But Paul says love gives up that tally. Love doesn't keep a record. Love is not saying, okay, I did these things for this person, and now they need to do these things for me back. No, love just disregards that record. Love just loves, the people who love are driven by their heart for God and other people. It's not about keeping score. Paul goes on and says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, and endures all things. All things. All things. Not just when the sun is shining, not just when we feel like we're in the mood to love those around us. Not just when the people around us deserve it. In all things, all times. It's incredibly difficult. And unless we experience the love of God, unless we're filled with the love of God, we can't love like that. The only hope we have of loving like that is receiving the love of God for us and allowing that to flow out through us. Love is easy to replace. It's hard to practice. And then Paul says finally that love has eternal rewards. Paul tells the Corinthians, the spiritual gifts that you take pride in, prophecy, the gifts of tongues, knowledge, these things are going to pass away. And uh, when you get to heaven, you're not going to have a need for the gift of tongues because everyone will understand one another. When you get to heaven, you will not need a gift of prophecy. You won't need someone to speak on behalf of God because God will be right there. He can speak to us directly. You won't need the gift of knowledge. When you get to heaven, you won't have to go to the heavenly library and study books. God's going to reveal everything to us. And if we have a question, we can just ask Him. We don't have to read a book. I mean, the one who created the heavens and the earth is going to be with us there. So Paul says that these things that you put so much faith in are going to pass away. But he says three things remain. He says faith, hope, and love remain. Faith is going to remain forever. Now, we might think to ourselves, so how is there going to be faith? If we see Jesus face to face, how are we going to have faith? Well, any relationship that we have, we have a faith in the person that we have a relationship with. Even if we've met them, even if we spend you know, every day with them, we have to put our faith in them. Faith that they're going to take care of us. Faith that they're going to be there. Faith that they're not going to leave us. And so even when we get to heaven, we're going to have that faith in God Faith that he's going to take care of us. Faith that he's never going to leave us. Hope. You know, we think about hope. When we get to heaven, you know, are we going to have a need to hope? Well, not in exactly the same sense. Now we're hoping for what we don't see, and we're hoping for that heavenly country that God is going to give to us. But when we get to heaven, we'll have a hope that each day is going to be better than the next. That the future is going to be good for us, and so we'll maintain that hope. But Paul says the greatest of these is love. He says, for all eternity, what you're going to be doing is loving. Loving God, loving those around you. 
And that's very significant because if we want to be significant, if we want to live lives of significance, the only way we can do that is by doing what's going to last forever, by loving those around us. The greatest way that we can spend today is loving God and people. The way we can spend tomorrow loving God, loving people. The greatest way we can spend 20 years from God now is loving God, loving people. The greatest way we can spend eternity is with God, loving Him and loving His people. That's what life is all about. And if we want to be significant for the kingdom of God, it's not about doing something great and grandiose for God. I mean, praise God when He allows us to do those things. Praise God when He allows us to, you know, go and be a missionary and see hundreds of people come to know the Lord. That's an awesome thing. Praise the Lord when He allows people to, you know, start orphanages and care for God's children. Praise the Lord when He does those things. But if we want to be significant, we need to live lives of love. Loving the people that have been put in our path. Loving our families. Loving those who are downtrodden. Loving those who are lost. And that's how we live a life of significance. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You look at that verse and think about you know, getting treasures in heaven. And what is one thing, the only thing that you can take to heaven with you? The only thing that you can take to heaven with you is people. Can't take any possessions, take, can't take any stuff. The only, peop- the only thing on this earth that can go to heaven with us is other people. And so investing in other people, loving those around us, is an investment in eternity and has eternal rewards. So again, Paul says love is easy to replace, it's hard to practice, but has eternal rewards. But the thing that's interesting is that love is God's idea. Love's God's idea. 1 John 4 says that God is love. That's his nature. That's who he is. Now, God has a lot of attributes, but the one that kind of is at the forefront is the fact that he's God of love. Now, we think about this in creation. God didn't have to create the world. God didn't need us. God didn't need us to do anything. If anything, we just kind of get get in his way. But he created us for a love relationship with him. He created because he's a God who gives. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God pursued them because he loved them. When Israel failed again and again, God pursued them because he loved them. We know one day God would send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. And as he died on the cross for us, in his life, death, and resurrection, he displayed what true love really is. What love looks like. And if we want to be people who love those around us, we need to be gripped by that love of Christ. We need to be encouraged, challenged, and strengthened to love like Jesus loved us. Because in the cross, in Jesus' life, we see the perfect example of what love is. We see that love is patient. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, as we look at the gospel, he failed so many times. And yet, what did, Jesus, what did Peter say at the end of 2 Peter? He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
In Jesus, we see that love is kind. Mark 8, 1-3 says this, In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He, Jesus, called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Love does not envy. Luke 4, 5-8 says, And the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Love does not boast, Jesus said in John 8, 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Love is not arrogant or rude. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Love does not insist on its own way. Jesus insists on its own way. Luke twenty-two forty-one to 42 says, And he, Jesus, withdrew from a, about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Love is not irritable or resentful. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Matthew 23, 37-39, Jesus, probably weeping, says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Love rejoices with the truth. Luke 15, 4-6 says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found him, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep lost. Love bears all things. Jesus bared all things. Luke 22, 63-65 says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Love believes all things. Even though Peter, or Jesus knew that Peter was eventually going to deny him three times, Jesus said to, this, said to him this, He said, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of heaven shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Love hopes all things. In John 4, Jesus takes the time and crosses cultural uh, barriers to talk to a woman, a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands, and now she's with her sixth. And he offers her hope that she can change. Finally, love endures all things. Mark 15, 33-37 says this, And when the sixth hour had come, 
There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And all the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus is the perfect personification of love. And if we want to know what love is, we need to look no further than the cross, where God's love was displayed for all the world to see. And we can't love God, we can't love people unless we're gripped by that love of Christ. We just don't have the strength. Loving other people is hard. It's easy to replace love with other things. But when we're gripped by the gospel, when we're gripped by God's love for us, we have the fuel, the motivation, and the example to love those around us and to love God. So ladies and gentlemen, I encourage us, let's look at our lives. Let's see if we've replaced love with busyness. If we're just kind of going through the motions, doing a lot of things, or if our lives are focused on the things that matter. Let's look at our lives and see if we become focused on our possessions, whether that be our gifts, our opportunities, or maybe even material possessions, rather than using those things to love those around us. Let's look at our lives and see if we've maybe replaced love with spiritual practices. You know, we're doing all the right things. We're serving the poor. We're helping our neighbor. But we're just doing it because we just feel like it's something that's nice to do. We're not driven by a heart of love. Let's be challenged and encouraged by the cross, by the gospel, to love those around us like Jesus has loved us. And let's ask Jesus to teach, him, teach us to love like he loves. There's an old Christmas card, I think it was, that had this saying on it. It went something like this. It said, I asked God to take away my pride. And God said no. He said it was not for him to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to t- make my handicapped child whole. God said no. Her spirit is already whole. Her body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and God said no. He said that patience is the byproduct of tribulation. It's earned. I asked God to give me happiness. God said no. Blessings, happiness is up to me. I asked God to spare me pain. God said no. He said I must grow on my own, but he will prune me in order to make me fruitful. I asked God if he loved me, and God said yes. He gave me his only son who died for me, and I'll be in heaven someday because I believe. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. And God said, ah, finally, now you have the idea what it's all about, loving those around us, loving God. It's easy to replace love. It's hard to practice it, but the rewards go on forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, first of all, for our, the love that you've shown to us. We thank you that you exemplified love in every way, that while we were yet sinners, you were kind to us. You showed us patience. You showed us mercy. Coming to the earth to die on the cross for us, even though we didn't deserve your love, even though again and again we fail you, we run back to our own ways. Our hearts are so prone to wander, and yet still you choose to love us. Still you choose not to give up on us. Whereas others might give up on us, you choose to hope. You choose to 
believe that we can change, that you can make something beautiful out of us. Lord, we're grateful for the love that you have for us. Help it to grip our hearts. And Lord, help us to love you with all of our hearts. Help us to love those around us with the same love with which you've loved us. We know that we can't love except for the fact that you've loved us first. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to be gripped by your love, be gripped by your gospel. And help us, help your love to flow out through us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.